Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. So we are wrapping up our series called Pass It On, which is all about spiritual parenting. And when I say spiritual parenting, let me let you know here, I'm talking about principles that apply to parenting in the home, but also to being a spiritual parent to someone who is simply younger than yourself, kind of like the Apostle Paul was to Timothy in the Bible. So you may be here today and you say, I don't have kids, I don't have grandkids. This message is applicable to you because we're basically talking about what all healthy relationships need. I'm just doing it in the context of parent-family type illustrations. Now, up to this particular message, I have talked a whole lot about parents, but I want to speak to grandparents and great-grandparents for just a second here. I want you to know that you can have a very significant role in their lives. You can shape the lives of your grandchildren. In fact, I ran across a little essay that was written a while back, and it answers the question, what is a grandma? Anybody here a grandma? Raise your hand. Be proud. Okay. This was written by a third grader, okay? It's pretty classic. It says this, a grandmother is a lady who has no children of her own, so she likes other kids. <laughs> yeah. A grandfather is a man-grandmother. <clears throat> That's what you guys are, grandfathers. <laughs> Grandmothers don't have anything to do except just be there. Uh, they're so old, they shouldn't play, they shouldn't run, <laughs> It's just enough to drive us to the store that has the pretend horse and have lots of money ready. When they walk, they're, they're slow, but they notice things like pretty leaves and caterpillars. <laughs> they never say, hurry up. Usually they're fat, but not too fat to tie their shoes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> they wear glasses and funny underwear and they take their teeth out at night. <laughs> They don't have to be smart, only answer questions like why dogs hate cats and how come God isn't married. Uh, when they read to us, they never skip and don't mind if we want the same story again. Everybody should try to have a grandma, especially if you don't have a TV, <laughs> because grandmas are the only ones who have a lot of time. <laughs> you know, grandparents, you can have an influence, a significant influence on the future generations. Now, if you missed the past couple of weeks, let me just give you a quick review here. We started by painting a picture of what a healthy youth might look like. And not just a healthy kid, a healthy adult, a healthy human being. And we looked to this spiritual parent in the Bible, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a letter to his young apprentice, Timothy. And in this letter, he spelled out five key character qualities that would help his young friend kind of navigate his way through a very immoral, very godless society in the first century. And the five character qualities were confidence, character, conviction, compassion, and competence. So that's the end game we're after as spiritual parents. Now to get there, I'm talking about 10 biblical action steps we can take to be better spiritual parents. And so far we have covered six of them. The first one was belief. That is believing you can make a difference and what you're doing is important. Second is presence, spending quality and quantity time with them. Third is creating memories. Fourth was encouragement. Fifth was being a role model. And sixth was discipline. So today we're picking it up at number seven. I want you to write this down. What else does the next generation need? They need affection. 
They need affection. Emotionally healthy kids have this in common. They have been given proper affection and plenty of it. You know, from the time we're born, we have what might be called a skin hunger, okay? We need touch. We need affection. And if that skin hunger is not fed in appropriate ways, we may settle for inappropriate touch or become emotionally distant. You know, men, we're often accused of being emotionally distant, the emotional equivalent of a brick, basically. But if you and I can't figure out how to be emotionally involved in kids' lives, then we are robbing them of the affection they need. They will suffer harm. Let me just say this. If you're an unaffectionate father, let me tell you what you're producing. You're going to produce boys who don't know how to express themselves emotionally, and you will produce girls who will figure out how to express themselves sexually. Because one thing I've observed over the years as a youth pastor and a senior pastor is promiscuous teenage girls, not always, but quite often, it points back to the absence of a male role model or an unaffectionate father. Right, the father might be in the home, but the affection lights, they're not on. And dads, if, if your sons, they don't feel comfortable hugging you, they don't feel comfortable saying, I love you, then chances are you feel the same way. And if your daughters aren't getting the proper affection they so desperately need, I guarantee you that they will find it somewhere else and from someone else. And, and I understand that a lot of us in here may have hurdles to affection. Okay, I get that. For some of you, it wasn't modeled in your home. You grew up in a home where your parents had affection bypass surgery, kind of bypassed you. Well, let me just say this. You're not children anymore. So you need to figure out how to break that affectionless cycle so it doesn't wound and shape another generation just like it's wounded and shaped you. And I realize that, that there is a personality piece to affection. Okay, I understand that. I get that. Some people are just more affectionate by nature. They will hug anyone, anywhere, anytime, right? They hug people and, and dogs and trees, right? <laughs> and then on the other side of the spectrum, you've got the people who still shake their mom's hand, right? A little more reserved with the affection. There are different personalities, right? I get that. Personally, I'm probably somewhere in the middle, okay? I've learned that touch and hugging can be a powerful way to show someone that you really care. But I'm also not convinced that total strangers want to be assaulted either. And so basically, I try to be wise. I try to be prudent. I've learned from my mistakes. Some of you heard this story before. I've, I've learned from my mistakes, like the horror story of the time when I was patting a woman's belly thinking she was pregnant when she wasn't. Yeah. You only do that once in life, trust me. Happened right here at this church <clears throat> long time ago. So you know what? You can be at Hill Country Bible Church. You can be nine months pregnant. I am not noticing. I'm not going there. I have lived through that. There could be a hand shooting out of the ribs. I might shake it. <laughs> but I'm just going to assume it's a lively mole, not mention anything about pregnancy. <laughs> and my point is this. We all have hurdles, Right? But please don't make your kids or your grandkids suffer because of your personality or your past or your quirks. Figure it out. When my boys were younger, I would try to err on the side of being affectionate. You know, I mean, if that meant hugging, touching, wrestling, goosing, whatever I needed to do, right? I wanted them to get dad's affection. Encouragement is saying you love them, but affection is showing it. In the book of 1 John, it says this, dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us really show it by our actions. Now, if you have teens nearby, they need affection very badly. But something happens during puberty. I know most parents tend to back off because their kids start acting a little strange. 
right? And teenagers will point to parents and say, you're weird and you make me feel uncomfortable, which is kind of like the pot calling the kettle black a little bit. And so I know that teenagers and parents, you got this distance thing going on, but that's the time they need it the most. I mean, during adolescence, everybody's pushing them away. That's the time we need to be pouring on the affection. If you don't think that's true, go hang out with junior high boys for a while. Hey, they're always like touching and smacking and jumping on each other. Why? Because they're awkward, right? And they're not getting sufficient affection, so they're trying to get it for themselves. When my youngest son, Nathan, was a teenager, he wouldn't come up to me and say, Dad, hug me. Didn't happen. What would he do? He would come up and punch me or jump on me, right? <laughs> he was the happiest when I had him in a headlock, kind of dragging him around, right? It's like a hallmark moment. Rockwell should have painted that one. But if, but if you push those connections away, you're pushing kids away. And if they don't get that affection they need from us, trust me, they will find it somewhere else. Our world has many, many options for them. But you and I know that those are ultimately destructive. Here's a verse for you from Romans 12. Some of you ought to memorize it. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. So kids need affection. Okay, here's another biggie. Right? Maybe the biggest one I'm going to give you. Write this down. <clears throat> Responsibility. Kids need to develop responsibility. Having worked with teenagers, I have seen a lack of responsibility manifest itself in three primary ways. Easy to remember. A, B, C. You ready? A is for apathy. I mean, I don't have to care about being responsible. That's apathy. B is for blaming. Right? I don't have to take responsibility because it's never my fault. It's always someone else's fault. And C is for a care for me mentality. I've just kind of been cradled my whole life, and so someone else will figure it out. You know, what do you think today's generation of kids are going to say to their future children about the culture they grew up in? You ever thought about that? It's probably not going to be like a lot of our parents said to us about having to walk to school uphill both ways, right? barefoot in the snow after milking the cow. Now, I think today's generation of kids are going to go, man, life was so tough. I mean, there was one time my parents made me oversee the house cleaner. Golly. <laughs> if I was hungry, I had to go to the kitchen and talk directly to our dietitian. Man. Yeah, how do we as parents breed irresponsibility? Because we do. How do we move kids toward apathy, toward blaming, toward that care for me mentality? That's worth thinking about. Let's talk about each of these. How about apathy? You know, what do we do as parents? We solve all their problems, right? We're picking up after them, not making them do anything. We make money too easy to come by, not valuable enough. And so kids have learned they really don't need to do much or care much. That's apathy. Blame. Why do kids always blame? I heard about a, a girls' soccer match where the referee had to stop the match and send this 16-year-old girl off the field because she was wearing jewelry. And as she came off the field, the coach kind of jumped on her a little bit. And she said, hey, it's the ref's fault. I mean, he's supposed to check us before the game. Perfect, right? What do we do as parents? We tell our kids they do nothing wrong. Sweetheart, you got a bad grade in that class because your teacher just doesn't know anything. Or, or son, it's not your fault you're not getting playing time on the team. You're better than every kid on that team. Your coach is just lame. Right, we tell our kids they do no wrong, and it fuels that blaming mentality. What about the care for me mentality? I think the care for me mentality happens when we as parents never force our kids to shoulder responsibility. Right, so they just remain in this kind of infantile stage where they've never learned to become independent. Right? They're dependent on everybody. Everybody's supposed to care for them. 
But you know what? <clears throat> That's part of being a healthy human being is taking responsibility. One of the best decisions Wendy and I ever made was to make our boys pay for their own cell phone and their own cell phone bill. Because that way, if they broke it, lost it, uh, drowned it, sat on it, threw it, whatever, it was their responsibility. And let me tell you, they learned through painful heartache to protect those phones like gold. And Wendy and I, we would talk to parents all the time. We were so frustrated because their kids are going through cell phones left and right because they weren't caring for them responsibly. It's like, oops, need another one. So here's the tip, all right? Here's the action step I have for you. Allow consequences. Just allow consequences. So they break a phone, they lose it, they have to pay full price for a new one, which is usually way more than what they paid in the first place. Chances are they'll pay more careful attention to it the next time around. But if you bail them out all the time, they'll never learn responsibility. Proverbs 27 says, A prudent person foresees the danger ahead and takes precautions. The simpleton, you might circle that, the simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. Folks, if we don't allow kids to experience fair and natural consequences in life, they will remain simpletons and never develop that sense of responsibility. And I know some of you parents, you're the nicest, kindest, most wonderful human beings, right? Your heart is gold. You really want what's best. And you say things like, well, I'm just gonna help just this once. I know I should probably let them figure it out on their own, but they'll have plenty of years to figure it out on their own. They can't help it. And my fear is if I go too gentle on you here, you're not gonna get this. So let me just say it as straightforward as I know how. If that's describing you, you're crippling your kids. They will be inadequately prepared for the realities of life. And if you continue in your ways, they're not gonna be able to help others like you do. They'll always be takers and not givers. And this is not just for teenagers either. If you have little kids or grandkids, responsibility begins when there are consequences associated with boundaries, and they recognize this. And trust me, every kid wants and needs boundaries. If they don't have them, they will rebel. And if the consequences that are tied to those boundaries don't actually happen, they'll never learn responsibility. Now, you see this all the time with parents who count to three. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Right? That's a fine thing. Just get to three, right? Don't make me count to three. <clears throat> One, two, three, right? And it's like, maybe you're not hearing so well, right? I'm serious this time. Don't let the cyclone of fury come out of me. All right, here we go. One, two, two and a half, right? Now you're inventing fractions, right? The kid's laughing, Please allow them to experience the consequences of three. And don't change the consequences after the fact. Don't cave in. If you do, they'll never learn that lesson that there are consequences for being irresponsible. I've really hammered this one home because I think this is huge. I see it all the time. At least give this some serious time and thought. Kids need to develop responsibility. All right, let's whiplash and go from responsibility to something else called fun. Fun. Why do kids need fun? Well, because fun is biblical. And today's generation of kids, they are totally stressed out. They live in a crazy, fast-paced culture. Many of the parents are driven to succeed. They pass that drivenness on to their kids. And if you can just inject a little bit of fun and laughter into that, it helps relieve anxiety. It diminishes some of the, the fear in their life, the hostility. I mean, the Bible is very clear that a joyful, cheerful heart is good for you, physically and emotionally. Look at Proverbs 17. 
A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit saps a person's strength. In Proverbs 15, a glad heart makes a happy face. You know, I think as Christians, we ought to be the ones modeling fun. We should be setting the pace in this world because we have a relationship with the living God. We can experience what true joy is all about. But for so many Christians, they bought into this myth that the more serious you are, right, the, 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 the more deep you are, the more spiritual you are. Let me just say that's a myth. If you've been around our church for very long, uh, you'll figure out pretty quickly that we value laughter here. It's a safe place to laugh. Yeah, we take God very seriously, but we also know our own humanity, so we don't take each other all that seriously, but we absolutely take God seriously. And here's the tip, okay? Here's my action step for you. Learn to lighten up and schedule fun in your life. Learn to lighten up and schedule some fun. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes says there is a time to laugh. There's a time to dance. I mean, think about that. There's a time for those kinds of things in life. If you want to live life abundantly, meaningfully, joyfully, schedule some time for fun, for laughter. And I know for some of you, maybe this is a hard thing to do because you grew up in a church where you never laughed, right? You weren't even allowed to smile. Grimace was the look of choice in church, right? And that may have actually messed with your whole concept, your whole perception of God. Now, I am confident that Jesus laughed. I mean, Jesus was 100% God and 100% human. You know what all humans do? Humans experience emotion. Humans laugh, right? I mean, think about the context of Jesus' ministry. He hung out with 12 guys, right? A lot of walking, a lot of camping, right? Are you telling me they never had a few pull-my-finger moments, right? <laughs> Spare me. Like Peter didn't say something that made Jesus laugh, right? And some of you, you have this stuffy view of Jesus, right? You're thinking Jesus would have said, nice jokers, Peter. I delight it in your jesting. You make it be snorted goat's milk. <laughs> I mean, some of us, we just need to lighten up. Have a little fun with the life God's given us here. And let me tell you, I'm a pretty driven person by nature. So my wife had to help me with this. We had to schedule time for fun in our family. And for most people, it doesn't just come naturally. You got to step back and say, how can we inject fun here? Create an environment where kids can laugh, where they can be themselves. Because I can guarantee you this, if they don't experience it at home, they're going to go out, they're going to find fun somewhere else. And it may not be the type of fun you want for your kids. Fun is an important part of a child's development. All right, the final one. Let's get to number 10 here. This one applies specifically to parents. Children need a peaceful home. Not a perfect home, a peaceful home. You know, why is a peaceful home so important? Because kids are at battle all day long. I mean, do you realize the kind of culture they're growing up in? I mean, they are battling an X-rated culture and language and values. They're battling bullies and peer pressure and body image. All these battles going on. So they need to come home to a place where they can retreat, kind of drop the battle gear at the door. A shelter where they can be loved, where they can be cared for. And if a kid knows that he is coming home to a safe, peaceful environment, he can better handle all the stress, all the peer pressure, all the put-downs, all the temptations, all the stuff our culture dishes out on us. You know, the image that comes to my mind is of a kid coming through the front door, slamming that door behind him with a big sigh, as he kind of leans against and slides down the door with a smile on his face, he says, I'm home. I'm home. It's safe here. It's peaceful here. And what does a peaceful home look like? 
Yeah, I know so many parents who, they try really hard to buy stuff, right? A nice house, big screen TV, Xbox, right? Let's create an arcade at home so kids will want to be there. And that can be a neat part of parenting, but I'm telling you what kids really want is something that money can't buy. They want a peace in the home. They want that peace. It's not about the size of the house. It's about the environment inside of that house. You say, what are some of the ingredients of a peaceful home? Let me just rattle off a few from my notes here. Discipline that doesn't include yelling. Boundaries, but not a lot of rules. Place where their friends are totally welcome to hang out. For those of you who are married, a mom and dad who are really in love with each other and, and show that. I mean, that brings peace and confidence to kids, right? Knowing that they're not going to become a broken family. <laughs> place where there's freedom from comparison to other siblings. And finally, a place where kids can be themselves and don't have to pretend. Right, those are just some of the ingredients. But ultimately, let me tell you this, that peace has to start in us as Christians as we learn to walk in peace. The Bible says in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. See, peace comes from the Spirit in our lives, controlling our life. Romans 8.6, but letting the Holy Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. You know, the Bible says that all Christians have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Question is, are you letting that spirit control your mind so you can live in peace? And there are hundreds and hundreds of people around here who can testify to the fact that without the Holy Spirit controlling their life, all these 10 biblical action steps I've been talking about over the last three weeks, we don't have a shot at pulling them off. The Holy Spirit's the only one who can give us the strength to pull these things off. So if you're not doing life with God moment by moment, Peace won't surface. You won't have a peaceful home. It'll elude you. So instead of my home being a place that's a shelter from the storm, maybe it becomes the center of the storm. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Your home isn't a safe place. It's a storm. It's a battleground because peace isn't living in the primary people there. So this has got to start with your relationship with God and then bleed over into all these other areas of spiritual parenting. In closing, let me just say this. You know, I have heard some people indicate that they've been better parents over the past couple of weeks. And I think it's because they've been focusing on these principles. They've been trying to review these principles, apply these principles. But my fear is if we don't stay on top of this, they're going to kind of fade away. So what if you were to have a review of this on a regular basis? Then you could evaluate and say, how did I do today? And some days you say, ah, I kind of blew it today, but tomorrow I'm going to do better. So hopefully on the way in, if you didn't get one on the way in, get one on the way out. We have a little bookmark for you, okay? It's got the five C's and the 10 biblical action steps. Take that, use that, review that, go over that. And in closing, let me just say this. Rather than focusing on the guilt of how you've blown it as a parent in the past, let me just encourage you to focus on the future, people. Right, you can't change the past, but you can still make an impact in the future. It's not too late to start. Even if your children are out of the home, it's not too late to start. I heard a story a while back about a guy whose dad started writing him letters one year before he died. It took the dad that long to get it together. But man, those letters were like gold to that son. He saved every one of them. He cherishes them. So as long as you've got the breath of life, it's never too late. And something is better than nothing. But parents, let me just say this. Your time as a parent will fly by. I mean, very, very fast. You can mark my words on that. So make the most of every opportunity you have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
we know ultimately that apart from your Holy Spirit giving us the strength to do these things, we're, we're not going to be able to be the parents, the grandparents, the spiritual mentors we need to be. But God, I pray that we would take these 10 action steps from your word and apply them in our lives. That we would believe we can make a difference. That we would be present in the lives of future generations. Create good memories. Encourage them. Be role models. Provide them with discipline. Give them the touch, the hugs, the affection they need. Teach them to be responsible. Have fun with them. And create just a safe, peaceful environment. Lord, these things are things that can be done through the power of your Holy Spirit if we just take the time and we put in the effort. So God, I, I pray that you would help us to value, to value the time we invest in future generations. And God, I know that you're going to make a difference in our lives. Even as I've heard testimony after testimony over the past couple of weeks, God, I know that if we apply these truths, it will change the next generations. And ultimately, that's so important because our heritage, our legacy, the future of Christianity depends on us training up children in the way that they should go. It depends on training up the next generation. So God, you've given us all we need as far as instruction in your word. And the question comes back to us, how will we apply this? So I pray that you'd speak to all my brothers, all my sisters here today, and if they're not sure, that you would give them exactly the right steps to take to apply these truths. It's in Jesus' name we pray.